Dale, am I wearing you out? <laughs> Great. Could you open for us? Take your brown hymn to this morning and turn to 262, 262 in the brown.
favorite hymn this morning, and I see a hand, but we'll, we'll wait another second. Yes, Naomi. 52 in the purple. 52 in the purple. Uh-oh. Okay. Do we do we know this one? Uh, I don't know, but I don't know. Me and Andrew, and I think Kaylin know it. Why, why did you pick this one, Naomi? Huh? Why did you pick this one? Um, well, Grandma used to sing it okay. to us. Um, well, not 52, not 51. Um, grandma used to sing it to us in Sunday school. Okay, if you know this, sing loud. <laughs> Do we know this? All right, it's short, so we'll sing it twice. <laughs> I, I can't think of it off the top of my head. So. It's kind of a fast song. 51. 51. 51. 51. 51. Yeah, I still don't know it. It didn't help at all. <laughs> uh, okay, Do you want to play it through? Sure. All right, play it through one time. We'll listen one time, and then we'll sing it twice.
scripture reading this morning is 1 Peter 1, 1 through 19. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes through, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven things into which the angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Take your brown hymnal again and turn to number 438, 438 in the brown.
Our scripture text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 1. In our series, Joy Unspeakable, in our last study, we looked at the joy of adoption. Though Jesus was and is God the Father's uniquely begotten Son, that is never created, always eternal, yet God determined to have an extended family. This was no afterthought with God. Adoption is not man-made, but in the mind of God from eternity, in which he wrote in a roster called the Book of Life, by name, all who would believe in his Son and repent of their sins and thereby become brothers and sisters, heirs with Jesus. And what did God adopt? Well, he adopted unwanted children. Brat kids, sick kids, deformed kids, rejected gutter rats, whose very nature made them hostile to God. This was assigned in eternity past, implemented by Christ in time-space history, and applied by the Holy Spirit in the rebirth in us with a new nature that loves God and desires Him above all else. We close by looking, well, what what is the response of the adopted children? Well, if you're really adopted, there is the response of humility and thankfulness that God's mercy and grace dispense solely upon his own choosing. Secondly, as born a new people, we do not revert back to the old slavish lifestyle of sin. Number three, we share in the sufferings of Christ, yes. Share in his sufferings now and in the glory to come later. And then number four, adopted children call God, and it's not arrogance to do so, but we call God Abba or Father, and we petition him with the same confidence of answered prayer that a child in our family would come to us as parents and ask of us. It's a marvelous, marvelous privilege to go to God in prayer. Well, today's study takes us to the next logical step. We've looked at the joy of Advent, Christ coming for his people. Secondly, the joy of salvation, Christ redeeming his people. Thirdly, the joy of adoption, Christ making us join heirs with him. And now today, the joy of sanctification, that is a makeover in which the spirit of Christ begins to make us fit for glory. As we come, let's ask for the Lord's enablement. Holy Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the truths that we are studying about the whole area of justification. From start to finish, you do the work in us, seeking us out, saving us, forgiving our sins, granting us a hope and a joy in Christ that the world knows nothing about. We not simply talk about God as Father like the world does. They know nothing of the fatherhood of God. But we really are brothers with Christ, join heirs with him. Bless and honor your word and save whom you will. Move in our hearts to draw us close to you. Grant us the ability to be thankful and appreciative 
for our favored position, for nothing we have done, but for everything you have done. And we'll give you praise and glory and thanks. Amen. We're looking today at the subject, the joy of sanctification. A makeover in which the Spirit of Christ begins to make us fit for glory. I want to begin by defining what sanctification is. You know, sometimes, brethren, we cannot get away from the big words, the technical terms that we find in the scripture, nor should we want to, because, boy, there is a a pregnant meaning in these words that we should not want to skip over. And sanctification is one of those big words which is just full of meaning. The basic meaning in English is based upon the Latin sanctus, which means holy, to set apart as holy, to consecrate, to purify or make free of sin. And there are many parallel terms to this word. For example, sanctity, a sacred place or a purpose. Uh, We call this particular room in our building the sanctuary, the most sacred part of a religious building or a place uh, immune from the law, a sanctuary. Sanctum, another word, a study, an office dedicated uh, to privacy for contemplation and meditation. The Greek word is even more enlightened. The Greek word is hagiadzo. I know that's a mouthful. But it means to recognize or to consecrate something or someone as being hallow or holy. To separate from that which is profane or secular. To cleanse both externally and internally from whatever would defile or pollute morally. Set apart. Now the Bible lays great emphasis on the separation or distinction that the Holy Spirit is working within us and on us. To distinguish us from the common crowd, verse 1 and 2 of our text states, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout. Okay, why strangers in the world? Well, let Jesus answer. He says, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. John 15, verse 19. Why scattered throughout? Well, it's an indicator that we are among the minority. We are a sparse people, not the majority. Sanctification creates a disconnect from the world. It makes us strangers to the world's philosophy of life, which affects our behavior. Peter words it this way. You have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousings, and detestable idolatry. 
That's all in the past, you see. But it was part of you, see. It's part of me. He goes on, they, the world, think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. You're not doing what they do anymore. You're not going with the crowd. The, you, you see, the world were, was your former soulmate in sin. But now in Christ, they're not our soulmate in sin. We're not part of that. He goes on. But they will have to give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. 1 Peter 4, verses 3 through 7. Now, Peter is demonstrating here that sanctification has not only to do with the soul, but with the body. Men sin with what? With their bodies. Christians are called to be holy, that is separate from the world, in how they use their bodies. Now our minds go to such things as sexual sins. Paul writes, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13 and verse 18. I put them together so you get the point. That's something that we do with our body, sexual sins. What about speech sins? James is the guy that writes about this. And here's what he writes. The tongue is a small part of the body. But it makes great boasts. Hmm. Consider what a small, excuse me, consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. You've been seeing anything in the news about all the fires in California? They even caught a guy, can you believe this, that deliberately setting the fires in those forests out there. And they've lost thousands and thousands of acres. But James is talking about this as an analogy to the little member of the body, the tongue. Not very big member of the body at all. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue, he goes on, is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person. And sets the whole course of his life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. I didn't say it. James said it. James 3 verse 5 and 6. Now no thinking Christian would believe it appropriate for a holy people to have their mouths full of curses and obscenities and slander and backbiting and gossip and the like. But you know, for many, sanctification seems to have passed by 
these things and left them as untouched and worldly as before conversion. They're pretty wild with their tongues. And yet they claim to be Christians. Not possible. Sins of the body. What about our thought sins? Our thought sins. Paul writes, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ in that way. Ephesians 4, verse 17 through 20. Sexual sins, speech sins, thought sins. These we pretty well agree on, even if we're guilty in our life, that holiness or sanctification means that we must be at work cleaning up our behavior in these obvious areas of a pagan lifestyle. And this is the way that pagans live. Their mouth, their thought, their actions deprived of godliness. But, secondly, what about the not-so-obvious conformity to the profane and the secular? What about dress? What about appearance? Now, as soon as we hear these words, our minds go uh, immediately to a text like we find in 1 Timothy 2. Verse 9 through 10, which addresses women. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Or we listen to Peter, and he says, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. 1 Peter 3, verse 3 and 4. These are all worthy admissions because Solomon reminded his adult sons of the wicked women of his day. The wicked women, here's what he says. Out comes a woman to meet him, this guy, dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. She's loud and defiant. Her feet never stay at home. Now in the streets, now in the squares, at every corner she lurks. Proverbs 7, verse 10 and following. We remember God's indictment to Jerusalem. We read, the Lord says, the women of Zion are haughty, walking along with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, tripping along with mincing steps, with ornaments jingling on their ankles. Therefore the Lord will bring sores on the head of the women of Zion. The Lord will make their scalps bald. And in that day the Lord will snatch away their finery, 
the bangles and the headbands, the crescent necklaces, the earrings, the bracelets, the veils, the headdresses, the ankle chains, the sashes, the perfume bottles, the charms, the signet rings, the nose rings, the fine robes, the capes, the cloaks, the purses, the mirrors, the linen garments, the tiaras, the shawls. Wow, ladies, covered with everything. Instead of fragrance, there will be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-dressed hair, baldness. Instead of fine clothing, sackcloth. Instead of beauty, branding. Branding. Who, who gets branded in these Oriental societies? Were they not the slaves? People taken into slavery were branded. Isaiah 3, verses 16 and following. So he's condemning Israel's women for dressing and adorning themselves like women of the culture. But, now secondly, are not the men of our day into many of these things as well? What about body piercing? What about tattoos? Do you know the Bible says, Leviticus 19 verse 28, do not cut your bodies or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. I am tired of looking on TV. You can't hardly see a show or a newscast or anything where the men aren't standing around with their arms completely tattooed or they got a tattoo on the side of their neck or on their back or on their shoulder. Again, in Deuteronomy, God says, You are the children of the Lord your God. Do not cut yourselves or shave the front of your heads for the dead, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be His treasured possessions. Deuteronomy 14, verse 1 and 2. I remind you that it was the demoniac the demoniac of Gadara, of whom we read, night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Mark 5, verse 5. And in Revelation 14 we read, A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead... Or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of the wrath of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There's no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image. Or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Revelation 14, verse 9 through 12. What I am saying is that God does not see these things as being innocent, harmless these are the things pagans do as a means of adornment, oftentimes in protest against the accepted values of society. 
Well, guess what? God claims your body for himself. Do you not know, I'm reading scripture, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20. We don't often think about that. We, we, we think, oh, my body is my body. I do with it what I want. But Paul says, no, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and you're to glorify God with your body. That would mean your dress, your appearance, and so on. Secondly, what about your friends? What about your associates? I think we wrestle all the time with this issue. Can we truly be friends with the people of the culture? I didn't say acquaintances or a business partner, you know, those kind of things. Well, can we truly be friends with the people of the culture? You see, friends do things together. They think similar thoughts. They share philosophies on child-rearing and work and family. They eat together. They play together. They shop together. They vacation together. The list is endless as to what friends do with each other. But if sanctification involves as its root separation unto God, then God's word must have an important say about our social Jesus told his disciples that he had chosen them out of the world, and that is why the world hated them. Hmm. He went on to say that the world hated him before it hated them. And so Jesus, while eager to do the work of an evangelist in giving the gospel to the pagans of his day, nevertheless maintained a separation in life that Hebrews 7 verse 26 states in this way, Our Savior meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Witnessing to the world, but not becoming part of it. Jesus' brother, James, warns us, don't you know, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God. Well, I don't know if there there are many Christians that know that. I hope we know that. Friendship with the world is hatred towards God. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. James 4, verse 4. That's a hard pill to swallow. Or Paul put it this way, do not be yoked together with unbelievers for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common or what fellowship can light have with darkness what harmony is there between Christ and Belial Belial is one of the names for Satan he goes on what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever what agreement is there between the temple of God And idols. Wow. For we are the temple of the living God. 
As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them. Be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. Modern day churches have totally ignored this admonition. They have called themselves seeker friendly. Churches and in the name of evangelism they have tailored their church services for the casual dress of sandlot volleyball players to the music you can find on MTV to abbreviated 15-minute homilies instead of scripturally convicting sermons. All with the hope of witnessing, impressing sinners with Christ. But you know what's happened? The Jesus of the Bible has been lost in the parade. He's been lost in the glitz. God has not called you to adapt to the world or worse, to adopt the world into your church. When that happened in the New Testament, Jesus had this to say, speaking of the church of Pergamum. I have a few things against you, says Jesus. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. By eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Revelation 2, 14 and following. There's something Christ is saying. The church is different. It's made up of people, not of the world. Now, are we going to say to people, don't come to church? No. We're going to invite them to come to church so that they can hear the gospel. But what I'm saying is that they're not our bosom buddy friends. They are people to whom we are trying to win with the gospel. You want friends? Get to know the people of the church. Make them your friends. Work together on God-honoring projects. Plan. Sing music that will glorify God. And we had some of that the other week. Invite church members to dinner. Some of you are doing that. Praise the Lord. Plan your outings with God's people. Think of recreation in terms of spiritual edification and interaction with people of the faith. This is all part and parcel to a sanctified life. We need to meet together and encourage one another. Paul put it this way, since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love. As a breastplate, as a breastplate, 
and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. Just as, in fact, you are doing. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8 and following. You see where they were getting their fellowship. It was with the people of the church. Jesus did not call us to be butter popcorn and Hershey chocolate and candy cotton to the world. No, he said, you're You're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Matthew 5 verse 13. And Luke's account adds this. He says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure heap. It's thrown out. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Luke 14, verse 34 and 35. It's the holiness of sanctification that preserves the families and the culture of the unbelieving. Paul says that so long as a believing spouse sticks with his or her marriage to an unbelieving person, let me read it for you, the believing husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her unbelieving husband, or through, through her believing husband, Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. 1 Corinthians 7, 14. We have a sanctifying effect if we're living righteous and godly lives. Mary Poppins' philosophy, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, may seem the way to go when it comes to the gospel message. But the sugar fest of anemic cocoa puffs is just so much spiritual fluff that will damn people's souls in the end. So let's be salt. Let's be light in an uncompromising way for the watching world. And they are watching. They are. And they need to see holiness in our a sobriety with regard to spiritual things that they don't have. No time for God. No time for spiritual things. But they need to see it in your life as you point them to real life in Christ. Now then secondly, let's consider some sanctification resolutions. You always hear about resolutions at New Year's, but what about some sanctification resolutions for a joyful or blessed Christian experience? Well, let me suggest, number one, resolve to conform to the thinking, the speech, and the behavior of Christ the Lord. Jesus put it this way, it is enough for the student to be like his teacher 
and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household. So do not be afraid of them. There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, verse 25 and following. One of the reasons we dress the way we dress, speak the way we do, associate with the unbelieving in compromising ways is because we cannot bear the thought of not fitting in. Well, just what I read, it looks like we're not going to fit in too well if we follow the teachings of Christ. We don't want to be (laughs) the odd man out. And so we dress the same, we think the same as far as what we display. We play the same, we speak the same. Because sameness is pleasant, odd is uncomfortable. Sameness is acceptance, odd is rejection. Sameness is non-threatening, odd is very threatening. Sameness is stability, odd is uncertainty. Because we never know What's going to happen next? Peter's point. Here it is. 1 Peter 4. You have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans do. Oh, wow. 1 Peter 4, verse 3. And it is a call to leave such things in the past start living as the salt and light modeled for us in the life of Jesus who said I am the light of the world whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life John 8 verse 12 and verse 2 of our text says that we were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for what? For obedience to Jesus Christ. Verse 5 says, We are shielded by God's power until salvation's day is completed. And verse 7 says that the trials we experience are to prove our faith genuine, resulting in praise to God. So what I'm saying is stop worrying about fitting in with the world and take your stand with Christ. Conform to Jesus' thinking, to his speech, to his activity. Secondly, this is a hard one, resolve to cultivate friends and associates within the believing community. Our text, verse 22, Now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth, 
so that you have sincere love for your brothers, then love one another deeply from the heart. And he returns to this theme in chapter 2, verse 17. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God, honor the king. That's Peter. Paul puts it this way. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Romans 12, verse 10 and 11. You know, the Apostle Paul made this a test of faith, saying... We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. 1 John 3 verse 4. Would we have ever said it that way? Anyone who does not love remains in death? You know, such love has practical proof. John goes on to say, this is how we know what love is. Now he's going to define it for us. This is how we know what love is. And then he makes the statement. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. That's how you define love. 1 John 3 verse 16 now that's not John 3 16 that's 1 John 3 16 boy but look at the parallel if you think about it this is how we know what love is Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers this is how tenacious we are to be in cultivating friends within the church think also of the brotherhood at large say, well, what do you you mean by that? The brotherhood at large. Well, our association of churches, for one thing. Generally, in February, we have winter blasts for our teenagers, 12 to 18. We have men's retreat also in February. We have women's retreat in March. We have summer camp and conference. This is not just busy work. This is times to build a network of friends who share the same faith. You ever thought of taking some of your vacation time to go to conference? Oh, I wouldn't do that. I I, want to be with my... You need to think about these things. beyond the borders of our church there are others of like precious faith you'll never know and never experience with them unless you are part of them and I know we have to work we have to earn our money we have to pay the bills and all of that kind of thing but somewhere along the line there may be a place for you to build some time into one of these retreats Thirdly, resolve to take positive steps to resist, to resist 
conformity to the world. I said positive steps, because if you don't fight back, you're going to be absorbed. And I don't think this is simply a problem for young people. It's a problem we all face because we want to be liked. We want to fit in. The gospel of grace drew us out of the world's damning philosophies and actions. And God calls us to live separated and holy lives. Let me read it for you. Therefore I urge you brothers in view of God's mercy... To offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to rest, excuse me, test and approve what God's will is, what is good and pleasing and perfect in His will. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. And I like the Phillips um, paraphrase here. Here's the way Phillips writes it. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Ooh, isn't that good? Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good and that it meets all of his demands and moves towards the goal of true maturity. Oh, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Isn't this the battleground for all of us? I don't think that any true believer sets out, sets out in his or her thinking, saying, Christian or no, I'm going to live as worldly as I can. I don't think true Christians do that. No. We take seriously this exhortation, and that of verse 14 and following, as obedient children do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's works impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. 1 Peter 1, verse 14 and following. Now, The truth is, most of us think we're doing a decent job living a sanctified life for God. We seldom see our own sin, and when we do, the devil's quick to help us excuse it by using what I call a comparison scale. The comparison scale. The comparison scale in us says this. I may be doing this and that, but you, but you, well, but you is how we exonerate ourselves by comparing what we think 
as being rather harmless in thinking and behavior to others in the way they think and the things that they do. And we compare ourselves with others and we come out smelling pretty good. Because the people we compare ourselves to in our minds, and maybe in God's minds as well, are living pretty terrible lies with regard to holiness. You know, verse 17, however, tells us that God does not judge you on someone else's behavior. It says, since you call on a father who judges each man's works impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. What is he saying? He's saying, forget the other guy. How are you living the separated life? The world will squeeze you into its mold ever so gently, ever so unknowingly. It will feel so natural, so right, so harmless that you'll be making more excuses for your conduct than reformation. So the charge comes to us to be vigilant, to be alert. And then fourthly, resolve to have the Bible and its teaching as your final, full, sufficient authority for faith and practice. The Bible. I think Bible studies together are good, they're important, but I remember what Dr. Greer said. He said sometimes it's just a pulling of ignorance. A pulling of ignorance. What do you think? I don't know. What do you think? Oh, well, here's what I think. And it isn't thus saith the Lord at all. It's more a sharing of opinions, commentary on the word of God rather than the word of God, which is a sword that'll cut you and make you bleed, but for your good. It's the kind of scalpel surgery we need to get rid of the sin and the cancers that destroy us. Verse 17 tells us that God does not judge us on someone else's behavior since you call on a father who judges each man's works impartially. Live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Forget the other guy. How are you living? How are you living the separated life? The world will squeeze you into its mold. (laughs) It'll feel so natural, so right, so harmless. And then one more resolution. Resolve to have the Bible and its teaching as your final, full, sufficient authority for faith and practice. Not what other, your fellow brother thinks or says. What does the book say? Part of the ease with which the world keeps its hooks in us is through the false assumption that man knows best how to solve his problems. 
I call it, we depend on the expert. We depend on the expert mentality. Got health issues, what do we do? We call the doctor. Financial issues, we see the banker or the financial advisor. Suffering from this depression, call on the psychologist. Difficulty with an unruly child, contact the social worker. For every ailment that plagues the human condition, society has its answers. And I can tell you from working on many committees in government and in agencies in Lapeer, the world works hard to solve these ills as they see them. What I am saying is they're not sitting on their hands. The health department. The mental health department. They're working on society's ills. Education is their mantra. And they think they know the solutions. They are thinking. But their thoughts are not God's thoughts. They are doing, but the activity is totally devoid of the Creator's wisdom. If I want to buy a new appliance for my kitchen, I'm going to talk to an appliance repairman to find out the most reliable refrigerator on the market before I buy. That's fair. That's something you should do. But if I want to know how to cool the heat of a tongue that's set on fire of hell, I'm going to consult God. If I want to know how to save and improve my marriage, I'm going to read God's word. If I want to learn how to discipline my children and restore sanity and sobriety in my family, I'm going to listen to what the Bible has to say about these things. And incidentally, the wise man Solomon has a lot to say about child-rearing. And even here we can see, if we're honest, how much the world influences us. It will take a concerted resolution to trust the Bible over the alleged wisdom of men. Paul puts it this way, for... Though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 and 4. It's been said this way, thinking God's thoughts after him. That's what we're called to do as believers. That's where your answer is. It's in God's word. 
I could say it this way, God has spoken on every conceivable thing that has to do with life and living. He's spoken on everything. It's in the book. It's in the book. Sex sins, stealing sins, a lying tongue, misuse of the body, child abuse, on and on. You name the wicked, evil subject that you want some discernment about, you'll find the answer in the book. Now, you might have to get out your Bible accordance and look up these things, but it's there. It's there. And as believers, we need to mirror back to the watching world that we know how to use God's word and obey God's word to solve the ills of the sin that's in our own families and in our own hearts. And it's in in them seeing that that points them to Christ. Points them to Christ. To the unbelieving here this morning, the same old's true. You can devise your own thoughts of salvation. You can devise how you will enter heaven at death. Or you can ditch those arrogant opinions and believe Jesus when he says, as he does say, and I'm going to read it for you, I told you that you would die in your sins, and if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. John 8, verse 24. And then he makes this claim. I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, verse 6. How many ways are there into heaven? Could anything be more plain? I alone am the way, the truth, and the life. You say it doesn't say alone. Oh, it does in the Greek. You say, well, how does it say it in the Greek? By repeating it. It says, I am, I am. I am, I am. Each one of these things. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. When the Greeks keep adding the verb to whatever's being said, it's emphasis, emphasis, emphasis. It's I am and there is no other. Granted, the English doesn't bring that out, but it's there. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life, and no one, no one comes to God the Father except through me. The best resolution you can make is to believe God in whatever he says and then act upon it. Why? Because God's not a liar like men. God's going to tell you the truth. Say, well, I don't like what God says in his word because it makes me feel bad. Well, if you need to feel bad, feel bad. But at least you're getting the truth. You say, well, it cuts me, it bothers me, it convicts me, it disturbs me. Well, be disturbed. But be saved. (laughs) Come to Christ and be saved. 
And then you won't be disturbed anymore. You'll be emancipated. You'll love the God that you hate. You'll appreciate the Savior you have rejected for all this time. I pray that that'll be the case. On the other side of glory, on the other side of your stubbornness, is glory. If God brings you to that, hallelujah. He brought salvation to all of us here that know the Lord. And none of us are regretting it. None of us are saying, oh, no, I wish I wouldn't have come to Christ. I wish I had never heard about Jesus. No, instead we praise the Lord for his goodness. Our Father, thank you for your word. And Yeah, it is the sword of the Spirit. And swords cut and makes us bleed and makes us hurt. But swords also have this ability to cut away that which is putrefaction. Sore wounds. Malignant tumors. The scalpel cuts and it gets in there and it does cause bleeding and yet it brings healing. I pray that we'll see that the word of God will do that for us as we submit. Cut away, Lord, cut away our stubbornness, our indifference. Come to us today, heal us. And if, if need be, and it is, Necessary to cut out the the sinful tumors that have overtaken our souls. The blackness that's there. The cancer that's there. Cut away, cut away, cut away. Bring healing, bring healing to our souls. This we pray firstly for your glory. For you are glorified if just one sinner comes to you today. You're glorified in that. But it's also for our good. It's always good to be reconciled to God. Not at odds with you. Not fighting you. Not kicking against your will. But submitting. Bless these truths to our heart. We pray for your glory and our good. Amen. Our closing hymn today is from the Brown Hymnal, number 441. 441. Let's stand together as we sing.
thought that the sanctifying process here on earth is to prepare us for service above. I don't think we think about that too often. But this is kind of our grooming, proving grounds type of thing. Learning how to be holy, learning how to live holy lives in a watchful world that is full of sin, getting us ready for glory. Something to think about. Let's live, the, live for the Lord this week. Be responsible in our living, holy in our living, in our speech and our actions. Amen. Thank you.